welcome to the podcast series for the Journal of Neurophysiology. I'm Bill Yates, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal, and today we'll be discussing a recently accepted Rapid Reports manuscript entitled, Are Ipsilateral Motor Evoke Potential Subject to Intracortical Inhibition? We have one of our associate editors, as well as two of the authors of the manuscript here with us today. Would everyone like to introduce themselves, starting with Monica? Hi, I'm Monica Perez from the University of Miami. I'm Winston Biblo, uh, I'm a professor at the University of Auckland in Auckland, New Zealand. And I'm Alana McCambridge, and I'm a student at the University of Auckland, New Zealand. Thank you. Monica, would you like to ask the authors a few questions about their rapid report manuscript? Sure. This is an interesting study that aims to examine the effect of intracortical circuits on ipsilateral motor evoked potentials elicited by non-invasive transcranial magnetic stimulation in intact humans. It is possible that these responses involve transmission in cortico-reticulo-propiospinal pathways. So, could you like to start by describing the main findings from your study? Yeah, the main finding was that the uncrossed descending pathways from the motor cortex to the spinal cord that are involved in the control of the arm are influenced by intracortical inhibition. And they can be investigated non-invasively using transcranial magnetic stimulation in a similar manner to the more predominant crossed or contralateral pathways. So to be honest, we were a bit surprised that no one had studied this using paired pulse stimulation previously, but presumably that's because it's much easier to investigate the circuitry of the cross-cortical spinal pathways, which undoubtedly play a larger role in controlling movement. Could you describe how did you test intracortical inhibition and ipsilateral motor evoke potentials in your subject population? Well, I could, but because um, Alana ran the experiment, I'm going to let her do that. So first off, we tested whether an individual produced an acceptable ipsilateral MEP in their biceps brachii using a 10% contraction by collecting a block of 12 frames using single pulse TMS with an intensity of 100% of the maximum stimulator output. And then if they did produce an acceptable ipsilateral MEP, we further decreased the stimulation intensity in steps of 5% maximum stimulator output until an ipsilateral MEP was no longer present in the waveform average. We then chose to set the test stimulus for paired pulse TMS to be the intensity which produced ipsilateral MEPs that were reasonably persistent, so that were present in more than 50% of trials. We then determined the participant's contralateral active motor threshold and set the conditioning stimulus intensities to be 85, 100, and 115% of the contralateral active motor threshold. And so short interval intracortical inhibition was measured in our study using paired pulse TMS with these conditioning stimulus intensities at both 2 milliseconds and 4 milliseconds into stimulus intervals. Can you describe in more detail the task that you use in your study? I know that you use uh, bilateral isometric voluntary contractions of the biceps brachii. And why did you select this task? So we use as you said, an isometric bilateral elbow flexion task, and the participants were seated with their elbows rested on a surface with an elbow angle of 90 degrees and their forearms supinated. And we had cuffs that were attached to their wrists and embedded with force transducers, so the participants were asked to maintain a 10% maximum voluntary contraction. And then the force traces were displayed on a screen in real time to help them maintain this contraction. And we selected the bilateral elbow flexion task as we wanted to evoke ipsilateral MEPs in their biceps brachii. And in, then in a study by Tazo and Perez in 2014, 
they had shown that repeated subthreshold stimulation, which can also be used to infer intracortical inhibition in EM1, had produced greater intracortical inhibition in the ipsilateral M1 during a bilateral elbow flexion task compared to a unilateral contraction. So that's why we chose the bilateral task. I also have some questions about the methodology that you use in the study. So intensities between 85%, 100, and 115% of the active motor threshold were used to examine short interval intracortical inhibition on ipsilateral motor evoked potential. So how much do you think transmission in other circuits could have contributed to your findings? So in our study, we chose to use 2 milliseconds and 4 milliseconds interstimulus intervals, so there was less chance of there being interference from other circuits such as short intracortical facilitation. For example, in the study by Perala in 2008, they found that intracortical facilitation peaks at around 1.5, 3 and 4.5 interstimulus intervals, but dips away at around 2 milliseconds and 4 milliseconds intervals. So even though our measure of intracortical inhibition can only really tell us about the overall net amount from all input, the contribution from short intracortical facilitation interfering with the inhibition should be minimal at these intervals. Alana, I'm thinking a little bit more about the intensity that you use, not the interval. There is some evidence that when you test short intracortical inhibition during voluntary activity, if you use intensities higher than 70 or 75% of the active motor threshold, there is a possibility that other pathways might contribute to those effects. Monica, I think you're absolutely correct. And of course, one of the things that we know about investigating these ipsilateral pathways compared to the contralaterals, we can't use exactly the same rules and protocols for the contralateral side and apply them to the ipsilateral side. So we can't rule out some contributions from elements, including those within the spinal cord, because of the nature of the conditioning stimulus threshold being above the active motor threshold. But the procedure that Alana just described, for example, demonstrates how you can at least minimize the impact of other factors, both intracortical and subcortical. I think you raise a very good point, Winston. As you know, this is one of the issues that we have to consider when we are testing uh, humans using non-invasive stimulation. Um, so the other question that I have is, how did you determine the stimulus intensity? Or why did you go to the contralateral corticospinal pathway and perhaps not base your intensity on the ipsilateral motor evoked potential threshold for the conditioning stimulus um, when you were testing short interval intracortical inhibition. Could it be that the threshold for intracortical circuits targeting ipsilateral and contralateral responses is different? So the threshold for evoking ipsilateral MEPs is obviously much higher than the threshold for contralateral MEPs. So if, if we had set the conditioning stimulus intensities relative to the ipsilateral MEP threshold, then the intensities would have been much higher and probably recruited more subcortical elements which would have then taken away from determining if the inhibition was more likely to be intracortical. I see. So I, I guess the idea, your view then, is that a similar set of interneurons will be targeting contralateral descending corticospinal pathways and ipsilateral descending uh, corticospinal uh, pathways? Yes, our thinking is that there's at least some overlap there. We know that because the ipsilateral MEPs are more difficult to evoke, that they're 
held more strongly under tonic inhibition. So it could be necessary to investigate all of those networks with, with a stronger conditioning stimulus. But as Alana points out, if we do that, we run the risk of introducing many more uh, subcortical elements that are going to just impair our ability to uh, determine where the effects are coming from. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that even at these intensities, there is a, a possibility of, you know, involving a, a few other circuits in the pathway. So I think your paper comes an, at a very good time because there is an increased attention in clinical studies trying to address the possible role of ipsilateral motor pathways in the recovery of motor function and in the rehabilitation of uh, patients with motor disorders. So how do you envision the potential role of this ipsilateral descending pathways in the rehabilitation of these patients? Certainly. I mean, one of our main aims is to help people recover hand and arm function after brain injury, such as that caused by stroke in adults or even cerebral palsy in children. And what we've found over the years is that the ipsilateral pathways are immediately upregulated after injury. And in some people, this can be detrimental and even worsen their impairment. But in others, these pathways are the only viable option for regaining function. And we know that children who undergo hemispherectomy to treat severe epilepsy, they rely solely on these ipsilateral pathways to regain all motor functions. And many of them do just that. And that's remarkable. But adults who have the same procedure or after a severe stroke make minimal recoveries. So we don't understand the distinction here, why we can make good recoveries early in life and poor recoveries later. But it seems plausible that these ipsilateral pathways should be considered as a therapeutic target at least in some cases, and so a better neurophysiological understanding of their makeup is going to be essential to make progress in that regard. Mm -hmm. And how much do we know from animal studies about projections from intracortical circuits to ipsilateral descending motor pathways? So in regards to animal studies, the intracortical circuits that act on ipsilateral motor projections haven't really been considered that much. Jankowska and colleagues have studied ipsilateral motor pathways in animals, but have done this by stimulating the ipsilateral pyramidal tract or the reticular formation. So to our knowledge, anything above the pyramidal neurons haven't been studied yet in animal models. I'd like to thank Monica, Winston, and Alana for their contributions to the discussion today for the manuscript, Are Ipsilateral Motor Evoke Potential Subject to Intracortical Inhibition? Part of the podcast series for the Journal of Neurophysiology. 